Thank you, brother, very much. The word holy, we speak about a holy night. That word means set apart, special. It's where we get the word holiday from because it's a different day than all the others. And that was the most different day, wasn't it? It was not another night like that ever when Jesus was born. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning, verses 67 through 75. Now, this section has been called Zechariah's Prophecy. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist. This is what he says at the birth of John the Baptist in the announcement of that. But in him saying this, it has connections to the birth of Jesus as well. Because why was John the Baptist's birth so special? Well, because he was the forerunner of Jesus. Listen to these verses. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of a servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is the word of God. Thanks for coming. You can be seated. While you're being seated, please bow with me. Father, this is your holy word and I pray that you would please help us this morning. Please apply these eternal truths to our hearts. Lord, give us grace to hear them rightly. Just like Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Lord, that's implied that there's a different kind of hearing that's required when it comes to the holy scriptures. Father, I pray, give us grace because we, we come in this room distracted, maybe discouraged. Father, I pray that you would please give us grace. Speak to us. Give us grace to hear it and respond rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think I told you before Christmas, I love Christmas. My favorite time of the year. When I think about Christmas, though, and when I think about the attributes of God at Christmas, there's certain attributes of God that come to mind and probably come to your mind too. I'm guessing when you think about Christmas, if somebody said, okay, think about Christmas, think about God at Christmas, what sort of attributes, characteristics do you think about God for Christmas, for giving us Christmas? Well, you probably think, well, when I think about that, I think about God's love. It's loving because like John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. So I think about God's love at Christmas. I think about his mercy at Christmas because he didn't have to send us a savior. You know, he didn't send a savior to the angels who rebelled. But he sent a savior to man who rebelled. So we think about God's love, his mercy, his kindness. It was kind of him to do this for us. We also maybe think about compassion. He's compassionate upon us. He saw us in our state and chose to rescue us. But do any of you, really, do any of you, when you think about Christmas and you think about God's characteristics that causing there to even be Christmas, 
Do you ever think about God in his wisdom? Is that a characteristic that ever comes to your mind? You think, oh, what do I see about God at Christmas? Wisdom. His wisdom. Probably not. Um, You probably don't go there initially. Well, two Sundays ago when we began this series called Two Kings, you might remember the first one was humility and pride because the two kings were comparing comparing and contrasting are King Jesus and King Herod. So we talked about humility and pride, the humility of Jesus to come in the way he did, but the pride of King Herod, and we said, let's not be like that. Also, the second sermon series, second sermon, rather, was Truth and Lies. We had humility and pride was the first one. Last week, Truth and Lies. Well, today I want to talk about two kings, wisdom and folly, the wisdom that we see of God in fulfilling the scriptures at the birth of Jesus Christ with the folly of King Herod during this time, great folly and foolishness. So, as far as an explanation of what wisdom is and what it means so you can see God's wisdom at Christmas, let me talk about this. One of the most clear pictures we find in the Bible of both wisdom and folly is actually found in the book of Proverbs. When it comes to wisdom, the word translated as wisdom in the Hebrew is the word chokmah. It's the Hebrew word chokmah. We find all throughout the scriptures, wisdom. But it's found most concentrated in the book of Proverbs where we find that word 46 times. Totally beats any other Old Testament book. The second place for that, I think, is... The Psalms, and it's 22 times. 46 times we find this word wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And when we say wisdom, don't just hear me as talking about like intellectual smarts. It's not what we're primarily talking about when it comes to wisdom. Now, it does include the idea, of course, implying your intellect to life and, and doing life well. But wisdom, as it's used in the Bible, especially with this word chokmah, wisdom, it really also includes the idea of like a skilled artisan, someone who's really excellent at his craft, like a carpenter who's able to take wood, chunks of wood, and create them into like an amazing table or a cabinet or a home even. Or think about like a stonemason, who builds beautiful walls and beautiful archways or a beautiful winding path with the stone. And he does that, according to Scripture, with chokmah, this ability to apply to life beautifully. Because what these gentlemen, what they're, or, or ladies, what they're able to do with these skills of a carpenter or a stonemason, you know what they make? It's not always just functional, It's not just functional, it's beautiful. You've seen some things. I mean, we've got men in here who can do these things like Javier and Paul and also Mark. They're able to build things that don't just work, they're beautiful to look at. And that's the idea of chokmah. They were created with and by chokmah, this ability to apply wisdom like an art form to life. Now, we're told to possess wisdom in the scriptures. We now... We're told to possess it. We're told to search for it. We're told to heed its call, right? 
not just as the I, not just in the idea of like being an artisan, but applying truth to life in such a way so that we can live it well. But our pursuit of wisdom begins in a certain place. See, true wisdom is always connected to God. True wisdom is always connected to God because according to that same book, Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, what's the fear of the Lord? We've got to have that to even start out with this wisdom stuff so that we can be like God. What does that mean? Well, having a right respect for him, having a right understanding of his truth of right and wrong, his truth of good and evil, and where I fit into his world according to all his truth. That's what we mean when we talk about having the fear of the Lord. And the main reason why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is because, number one, wisdom is ultimately an attribute of God. Any wisdom that we have to do life well comes from and starts with God. God's wisdom is also his ability to skillfully create and cause things to be the way he wants them to be, to be perfect the way he wants them to be. It's a combination of his sovereignty, his goodness, his justice, his knowledge. That's all tied up in wisdom. Like I said, it's, it's his ability to skillfully create and cause things to be or become the perfect way he wants them to be. Listen to Proverbs 3.19. Listen. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So how did he create everything according to the word of God? By his wisdom. He was wise. He applied skillfully chokmah and created the world to function perfectly in the beginning. But I said we're going to talk about wisdom and folly. That we've seen these two kings, wisdom and folly. The opposite of wisdom in the Bible is folly. Some translations translate it foolishness. We don't really use the word folly much anymore. Kind of sounds old, doesn't it? I like the old-fashioned stuff, though. I'm kind of old-fashioned. Everything that wisdom is, folly is the opposite. Folly isn't stupidity or someone being simple-minded. We don't mean that when we say folly. No, folly is the result of ignoring or shunning and rebelling against God's right standards. Now, so far, you're thinking, we're just getting a bunch of truth about wisdom and folly here. Not hearing a lot about these two kings yet. This doesn't feel very Christmassy. It's because I'm setting the stage. I don't want to throw these things out there without you having a biblical understanding of them. That's actually where most of us go wrong in a lot of areas. We think we're doing things well, but it's because we're not actually understanding them biblically. And we wonder why we keep hitting our head up against the wall of life. It's because we didn't let this be our guide. So you need to understand that folly, according to Scripture, is ignoring and shunning and rebelling against God's righteous standards. That's what folly is. You ignore what God says. Folly is always connected with sinfulness. So listen, wisdom is connected with righteousness in the scriptures. Folly is always connected with 
sinfulness. That's why Proverbs 5, 22 and 23 say this. Listen to Proverbs 5, 22 and 23. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare them. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he's led astray. Iniquities, wickedness, sin, all those words are used, and then it says, because of his great folly, he's led astray. Folly is the ignoring, the shunning, rebelling against wisdom. It's doing the opposite of all that God says is right and good and just and wise. That's what folly is. And if you read the Proverbs, you're going to see that the wise man and the fool, they're always contrasted against each other because they're on the polar opposite ends of life. And when you read about the fool and his folly, because the Hebrew word for fool is actually in the word, the Hebrew word for folly or foolishness. It's in there. It's built into it. When you read about him, you don't want to be him. As you read the Proverbs, and you read about the fool, you say, oh gosh, I don't want to be that guy. So our two kings embody those two polar opposites, wisdom and folly, and they couldn't be more different from each other, these two kings. One is the result and the embodiment of God's wisdom, and the other is the result of his own rebellion against God and his truth. Just like Butch pointed out, earlier. The reason I want you to think about God's wisdom at Christmas. He pointed out Caesar Augustus was doing exactly what he wanted to do. He made the census for his own personal ambition, for his own personal greed. He wanted to tax the world. He wanted what? Money. That's what he wanted. And his choices perfectly fulfilled prophecies that were prophesied hundreds of years before. Who else can make that happen except a wise God? You see what God was doing? He was perfectly sowing. He was using his chokmah to cause everything to move and be just how he wanted. It wasn't just functional. It was beautiful. <laughs> He's that wise, perfect artisan, but not Herod. Herod is a fool. He's a fool. Listen, what this gives you the idea of why you would want to be around Herod. Listen to Proverbs 17, 12 says about the fool and his folly. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. I've never come face to face with a bear. Anybody ever come face to face with a bear in here? Okay, Seth has. Was it a oh, so has was it at the same meeting that y'all met this bear? Okay. Every time I've ever hiked in the smoke, it's pretty much been like. See, okay. Did, but it was trying to get away from you, I'm guessing, when you saw it. Or you tried to get away from it? Neither. Okay, you just saw it. You guys said hello to each other. Okay. Well, if that bear had been robbed of her cubs, she, it would not have been as cordial as a meeting as it sounded. It sounded pretty cordial, right? She would have mauled your face off, right? I mean, you do not want to meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs. But the Bible says 
it's better. It'd be better. That encounter would be better than meeting a fool in his folly. This is just, you don't want to be around this person. Because like I told you, folly and foolishness is always connected with sin. Listen to what Zondervan Academic Study said about Herod. Listen to what this man was actually like. This is why you don't want to be around him. Herod was distrustful, jealous, and brutal, ruthlessly crushing any potential opposition. The Jews never accepted him as their legitimate king, and this infuriated him. He constantly feared conspiracy. He executed, listen to this, he executed his wife when he suspected she was plotting against him. Three of his sons, another wife, and his mother-in-law met the same fate when they too were suspected of conspiracy. Herod, trying to be a legitimate Jew, would not eat pork, but he freely murdered his sons. Matthew's account of Herod's slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem fits well with what we know of this king's ambition, paranoia, and cruelty. Zondervan academic study. What a fool. What a fool in his folly had six family members murdered, sons from his own body, wives from his own marriage covenant murdered. Why? He thought they might be conspiring against him to be in power over him, and he couldn't have that. This king, because of his great folly, was led astray into an evil life. That's evil. Murdering your own wife, murdering your own sons. What a fool. What an example of someone who is ignoring, like I told you, foolishness, ignores God's good, right, just truths. What a perfect example of that. And for his extreme paranoia that he's had, obviously. Did you know that being consumed with paranoia is actually a characteristic of the wicked, according to the scriptures. Being consumed with paranoia is a characteristic of the wicked in the scriptures. Listen to this, Proverbs 21, 28, 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one's chasing them. They think, someone's gonna get me something. It's coming. I'm paranoid. That's how the wicked act. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. His foolishness, sinful life, Herod's drove him mad, drove him crazy. He tempted to build and keep his kingdom through wicked, sinful, murderous ways. He was the biblical definition of a fool. Listen to this, Proverbs 14, 16. The one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. The one who's, right, the one who's wise turns away from evil, says, that's evil, that's bad, I will not go there. It goes against God's righteous standards, and because I have wisdom, I fear the Lord. I have a respect for him and his word and his truth. I respect it, and I see my right place in connection with it. Not the fool. He's reckless and careless. 
He doesn't care. What about the other king? The one that's not Herod. King Jesus. What about him? I said earlier that God's wisdom is his ability to skillfully create and cause things to be how he wants them to be. Perfect. Not just functional, but beautiful. Let's pick up in Zechariah's prophecy. I read it to you because we're going there this morning. We haven't yet gotten there. Let's go there. Let's look at Zechariah's prophecy. He's talking, yes, about John the Baptist coming, but what that means. And I specifically want to focus on verses 20, 72 through 75. He says that this coming of this one, which means the coming of Jesus is coming too, he says it does this in verses 72 through 75. It's for the purpose of to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He said this coming of this Messiah means that God's promises to our fathers, his covenant that he made to Abraham, it's fulfilled. Promises that were made over a thousand years before this happened. A thousand years, let's just round. A thousand years before this happened. And he's saying, God's doing it right now. God made it happen. This is wisdom. Only God can do this. Only God can cause all these things to perfectly fall into place exactly the way he wanted him to be, like a skilled artisan making something beautiful. God did it. And Zechariah sees that. He sees that God's doing it. You're doing this, God, he says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. He said, God swore he would do this. God made an oath, a covenant, a pact, and he's doing it. But it's interesting. In verse 72, it says, to show the mercy he promised to our fathers. When I read that, because guess what? Mary, when she meets Elizabeth and the baby leaps in her womb and she starts speaking these wonderful things, magnificent is what we call it, Mary says something very similar. He has helped his servant Israel in remembering his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Remembering his mercy as he spoke to Abraham, offspring forever. Zechariah, to show the mercy he promised to our fathers that he swore to Abraham. So she mentions mercy that was promised, and Zechariah mentions mercy that was promised. So I was thinking about the oath that God made to Abraham. And I was thinking, I don't remember the word mercy. They both mention the mercy they promised and his oath he made to Abraham. So I was thinking back to that oath. I don't remember the word mercy in there. I don't remember even the mention of mercy. So I don't just want to rely on my memory. So I went back and I looked at it. And I want you to look at it too. Because they both said God promised his mercy. And I'm like, well, where is it? Let's find it. Mercy promised. Genesis 12 Two through three. This is the initial covenant that God makes with Abraham. Genesis 12, verses two and three. You might remember as you're reading through Genesis, 
You get towards the end of chapter 11, Abraham's mentioned in all of his descendants where he is born to his father and his father before him. And then we get in verse 12, chapter 12, and God says, Abraham, you're mine. I'm going to bless you. I'm choosing you. He just starts talking to him and does this. Look, Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. No mention of mercy, promise there. This promise has four parts to it. I'll make you a great nation, number one. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing, number two. Number three, I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I'll curse. Number four, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's the four parts of that promise. No mention of mercy. He sort of reinstitutes and unfolds a bit more of this promise in Genesis 17. Let's go there now. Because he, he gives him a bit more when he gives him the sign of circumcision. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. He goes over these promises again. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. I'm, I'm building all this up. Genesis 17, 1 through 8. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you. and may multiply you greatly. That's part of what he said earlier, remember? Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. We saw that earlier as well. I'm going to um, make of you a great nation. So nothing really new yet, just a bit worded differently. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father. Now your name should be called Abraham, uh, which means um, father of a multitude, which is why he says to him, For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into nations. Now, here's something new that we didn't get before. And kings shall come from you. He didn't tell him that before. Something new. We get a little bit added on here. I will establish my covenant between me and you, your offspring, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God And then in verse 8, we get something new too. I will give to you and your offspring after you a land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. So we get a bit more. He tells him, I'm also going to have kings come from you and going to give you this land forever. Still, did you hear the word mercy in there? I didn't. What are Mary and Zechariah talking about? He says to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. She also says in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Well, I'm reading here what he's saying to Abraham and I still couldn't find the word mercy. So I kept digging. I kept looking some more. And I want you to listen to how this promise became more fully understood over time. There's a prophet named Micah. He's a prophet to the northern kingdom. Remember after the split, kingdom got divided because of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Kingdom's divided. They're both bad. 
The northern kingdom is really bad. The southern kingdom is pretty bad. The northern kingdom has all these prophets sent to it first because they're so wicked and they get carried away first by the Assyrians. Well, one of those prophets was Micah, and he goes back and forth between these promises of judgment and these promises of mercy. Promises of judgment and promises of mercy. Back and forth, back and forth throughout the book. Look at Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. Some wonderful, beautiful, precious things are said. When I was thinking about them this morning, I almost started tearing up because they're so wonderful. If you understand how sinful you are, they're wonderful. If you don't think you're that bad, yeah, none of this is for you. Christianity's not even for you. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So thank you for being here this morning. But if you don't feel that you're that bad, then I appreciate you being polite. But you need to understand, Jesus came to save sinners. Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he, he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob. What's another name for Jacob? Do you guys know? Israel. Yeah, he's talking about Israel. He's not just talking about the individual like, I'm going to show faithfulness to this man that's been dead for hundreds of years. He's not talking about, he's talking about Israel. You'll show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. He's talking again about now the Abrahamic covenant. But he's not talking about a great nation. He's not talking about a blessing to the nations or any of that. What does he now see in these promises that were made to Abraham except forgiveness of sins? Do you see that? Verses 18 and 19 are all about you're going to forgive our sins because you're kind and faithful. You're going to throw our sins in the ocean. You're going to remember them no more. You're going to pardon iniquity. And he connects it to as you swore to our fathers in the days of old, Abraham, Jacob. There's something in the Bible called progressive revelation. You know what it means to make progress. As you go on, you get more and more, right? Because if all we had, if all we had was the book of Genesis, that'd be wonderful. But it wouldn't be enough. God didn't just stop with Genesis. He gave us more and more. And so as time progresses on, the people get more and more knowledge and truth from God about God as to what the stuff at the beginning meant. That's why Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. He's the embodiment of all of it. That's why it's so great that we're in the new covenant, which is called a better covenant, made with better blood, a better sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Micah sees in the promises to Abraham are what? All kinds of mercy. Do you see that? You know what mercy means? It's... it's when God doesn't give you what you deserve. That's what it means to be merciful. Like I've told you about the movie I've seen before, the two kings fighting, or the two guys fighting with swords. And the guy beats the other one. And he's over him on the ground. And the guy on the ground says, 
Mercy. Mercy. Meaning, yes, you're supposed to kill me right now. You won, and you're supposed to run me through with the sword. But what I'm asking you is please don't give me what I'm deserved, what should be rightfully mine. Please don't give it to me. Have mercy. So what the prophet sees in the oaths made to Abraham now on the heels of their wicked sinfulness is this is about mercy. Because why would God still make us into a great nation and bless us and bless the world through us? Why would he do it now? Why would he do it now? We're so wicked. So isn't it wise and wonderful of God to send us a savior after all that. Plus also, remember when Zechariah is saying this. Remember in history of the Jews where he's saying this. It had been 400 years since God had spoken to them through a prophet. That's why everybody went out into the desert to see John the Baptist. They were like, this is new. Wow, stuff's happening again. There was such a draw to him because they thought, Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. That's why John the Baptist says, there's someone coming better than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. This is the one you're going to listen to. I'm just here to prepare the way for him. So when Zechariah says this, he's saying, God is fulfilling these promises now. God said that not only through Abraham would come a great nation, but kings would come through him to show the mercy promised to our fathers. It was there. Mercy was there because guess what? Abraham was from the land of Ur, from the Chaldeans. They weren't God worshipers, but God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Kings are going to come from you. One king especially. Over a thousand years from now. And I'm going to make it exactly how I want it to be. And he's going to come exactly the way I want him to come. Lowly, meek, and mild. Another king in his folly is going to try to kill you. And he's not going to be able to do it. Because I'm going to send one of my angels to warn the child's father, earthly father, and he's going to take you to Egypt. And his plans will be foiled. And as we're going to see soon, he's going to die in his sin. It is wonderful how God did this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. The wisdom that's all over this king is amazing. But this is Paul. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and, oh, there's our word, folly to Gentiles. These ones who were not God worshipers, these ones who were mostly pagans, worshiped whatever out there in the world. They weren't God followers, Gentiles. Christ is folly to them. This is foolish, weird stuff. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the what? Wisdom of God. That's why you should think about wisdom when you think about Christmas. The Bible even says 
Christ is the wisdom of God. He came because of God's perfect wisdom, perfectly creating everything the way he wanted it to be at Christmas time, even when a wicked king was doing exactly what his wicked, greedy heart wanted to do. God said, You're only fulfilling my best. Don't you see the wisdom in Christmas? And the mercy in Christmas. Just as Abraham, listen to me, just as Abraham did not deserve to be chosen and blessed just because God wanted to, do you deserve anything good from the Lord? Really, do you? I don't. The older I get, the more sinful I see that I am. And some weeks I think, God, I don't even know, number one, why you even saved me. And number two, made me a pastor? Are you kidding me right now? Why? And it just goes back to, because he's loving and wanted to show mercy to sinners. And it just breaks my heart sometimes. It's like when you know that you're so bad and someone says, I forgive you. I forgive you. And you think, why though? I'm so bad. And they say, because I love you. It's just like, oh gosh, why? I just do. I just love you that much. Christmas is about the wisdom of God, even in the face of such folly, our own folly. You're not that far removed from Herod. It's just a few levels of degrees. Your folly is also not desirable to be around, is it? Better to meet a she-bear than be around a fool in his folly, right? Well, Jesus wanted to be around you, so much so he became like you and died in your place so that you can be saved. What a king. What a wise, merciful king. Amen. Father, we thank you that you sent your son in your wisdom. You sent your son to fools in their folly. But also in your great wisdom, Lord, you chose a people because you promised that you would. You you promised you would bless the nations through this one, this king who came from the line of Abraham, a man who also received Mercy. Through Jesus Christ, like prophet Micah said, you pardon iniquity. You don't retain your anger forever and you have compassion on us and you cast our sins into the depths of the sea all because of Jesus Christ taking the punishment for them already and rising again from the dead. So we thank you in his perfect name. Amen.